Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to talk about stuff that happened. This podcast was created with the intention of giving a crash course in all these crazy historical events that have happened in the past and seeing how they all tie together to create the world that we see today so we can understand how things work, how politics work, geopolitical nonsense, all that crazy stuff, uh, because once you have an understanding of all of that, things start to fall into place to make a little bit more sense. I think it's important to understand the world that we live in. That's why I created this podcast. This podcast is not intended to be an extremely descriptive or elaborate uh, representation of anything that I cover. It's only meant to give you a basic understanding of the events that took place so you can have a springboard for whatever topics you feel like you want to do more research in. Today, the episode is going to be a little little bit different. As you remember from last week, I launched the new format that I'm going to be doing the podcast in. And in that format, I do uh, four episodes cycling through each other. I do an episode on music and culture. I do a music on uh, music. I do an episode on economics. I do an episode on ancient history and an episode on war. And then I cycle through again, occasionally throwing in a special topics episode. Last week, we did the live aid concert. And this week, we are focusing on capitalism versus communism. We are going to get into the nitty gritty today because this is a messy topic in the United States. Highly debated. Economics are something that a lot of people are very upset about in the country currently. And unfortunately, I think there is a lot of misunderstanding on both sides of the aisle about how these economic systems work, the benefits and detriments of each, and what each of these words actually means. All right. So economic systems are a pretty hot topic in the United States today because they extend into all facets of daily life. I mean, whether we're talking about taxes or healthcare, job opportunity, housing costs, anything else for that matter, the country's economic systems are fiercely debated on the political stage today. We're going to be getting into a lot today. Unfortunately, we're not really going to be going, taking the time travel machine back in time because we're going to be jumping back and forth all over the place. But you're going to have to pay close attention because we have a lot of ground to cover in a very short amount of time. All right, let's get into it. Back in 2016, Bernie Sanders campaigned for the Democratic Party under the flag of universal health care for all and government subsidies being used to make college affordable or even free to all university students in the nation. This was a radical idea to many conservative Americans, and ultimately, these radical ideas eventually lost Sanders the primary election to Hillary Clinton, who eventually lost the election to Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders ran again in 2019, but again, he fell behind in voting and eventually conceded to Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee, but rumors have persisted that he may yet run as an independent candidate. Time will tell. The 2020 election will definitely be interesting. But that's not what we're talking about today. I tell that story because Bernie Sanders ignited a fire among many young American voters, asking questions like, why doesn't the United States hold many of the social programs that other nations carry? Why is our healthcare so expensive? Why is our college unaffordable? Many young voters took up the crusade of championing increased social programs, in further cases, socialism, and in rare cases, communism as a means of reforming the United States economic systems. All right, before I continue, I'm going to be crystal clear about something. 
In researching for this podcast episode, I did so with absolutely no bias. In delivering this podcast, I will not hold any bias. The purpose of this podcast is to present pure, untainted information, which I will do. In researching for the capitalist societies, I will examine the benefits of such societies and the flaws of the same societies. And in researching communist societies, I will also research the benefits as well as the flaws. If you feel passionately about this subject and will be upset by hearing that something you disagree with may have benefits, I would suggest you listen to one of my other episodes that does not contain topics as currently politically charged as these. Okay, now that the fun's over, let's move on. First, we have to acknowledge that social programs, socialism, and communism are three separate things. Social programs are programs funded by the government deemed necessary for the survival and enhancement of society. In the United States, among these social programs are, this is quite a list, public transportation, interstate highways, public libraries, social security, Medicaid, community health centers, food stamps, school breakfast and lunch programs, section eight housing, public housing, low income energy assistance, Homeless Assistance Grants, Pell Grants, Migrant Education Grants, the Job Corps, the Title III Aging Americans Act, Family Planning, Independent Living Grants, the Economic Development Administration, the Farmers Market Nutrition Program, the Healthy Start Initiative, the list goes on and on and on and on. These are all organizations, programs, or initiatives formed by the United States government and funded by taxpayers for the sole purpose of benefiting the lives of community members. While social programs are a collection of institutions created by more capitalist government, socialism differ, uh, differs in that it is an entirely different economic system than capitalism, though it can still possess some capitalist uh, characteristics. Under a purely socialist state, the means of production and distribution will be given to the community as a whole, and all government institutions will be made entirely accessible to all members of the community, paid for by hefty taxes on the populace. Are you following me? Under a socialist state, the people will be governed by a democratically elected group of leaders. That's important to remember. Under socialism the elections are always democratic. This group of leaders is meant to be flexible and change and reform are encouraged among the people brought about by democratic means. Private property exists under a socialist state and under modern socialist ideals, individual innovation and work ethic can be rewarded as a free market economy can still exist in the limited capacity under a socialist state. All right, so that's socialism. That is a socialist state. Next, communism differs in several key areas. First, in a communist state, democracy is no longer a factor. According to Karl Marx, the author of the Communist Manifesto, written and published in 1848, which I have read, to achieve a true communist state, the existing government, along with the middle and upper classes, must be overthrown by the working class, and a totalitarian government must be instituted in its place. If you don't really know what a totalitarian government is, under a totalitarian government, there is no private property, no private housing, and very limited freedom of movement. However, under a truly communist state, all class distinction is eliminated, money no longer exists, 
and all basic necessities of life, such as food and medical care, are distributed to the people by means of a strong central government. Communism is defined by an ideal communal lifestyle. In a commune, a group of people with a, com with a common goal live separate from the rest of society and share all possessions and responsibilities equally. Everybody works, everybody eats. That's what a commune is, and that's what communism is modeled after. So now, I, what I now briefly want to address is to clear up any misunderstanding concerning a former presidential candidate that I have already addressed. I've heard people refer to Bernie Sanders as a communist, and more specifically, they call him a commie, and a derogatory version of the former word. This happens very frequently in conservative circles. For my research, Bernie Sanders does not fall into the definition of a communist. I mean, as far as I know, he's not planning any governmental overthrow, and I can see that he's a fan of private property and private commerce. To call him a communist is misleading. I mean, in fact, a candidate closer to a true socialist would have been the business owner Andrew Yang, who dropped out fairly early during the Democratic primaries in 2020. Now that that's cleared up. To lay out these systems very simply, social programs exist in a capitalist society by means of moderate taxes. Socialism is a form of economics where democratically elected leaders use heavy taxes to redistribute wealth among the populace while also funding basic institutions such as healthcare and education, making them free to the public. While there are heavy tax brackets, many argue that the benefits of free healthcare highly and highly subsidized higher education systems are worth it. Communism is less of a form of economics and more of a governmental style. Under a communist state, money ceases to exist and the basic needs of the populace are taken care of by a strong central government, generally taking power by means of government overthrow. There is no democracy in a communist state, but the means of production, hypothetically, belong to the society as a whole. Like I said, everyone works, everyone eats. But notice that I said hypothetically. Well, communism has never really worked on a large scale on our planet in the long term. While only a handful of countries still consider themselves to be economically communist, namely China, Vietnam, North Korea, Laos, and Cuba, even these countries have taken on many aspects of a capitalist society in order to survive economically. To put into perspective what communism, when practiced imperfectly, can do to an economy, these are a list of countries who were once communist. Afghanistan, Mongolia, Cambodia, Yemen, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, Angola, the DRC, Ethiopia, Somalia, Mozambique, among some others. And all of these countries have been struggling economically for the last however long it's been since they stopped being communist, even though none of them are actively communist. Many have been embroiled in civil wars or insurgencies for decades at a time, and these have left their economies even weaker as a result due to the economic hardships created by a communist society practice imperfectly. Why doesn't communism, which was created to bring about a perfect society, work? The way I see it, the first answer is pretty simple. People don't like to live under a totalitarian regime. People like to go home to a house they have either built or bought and have total ownership over. 
They don't like to have every facet of their lives dictated by someone else. The second answer I prefer to explain through a metaphor I've thought about over time. All economies need to have capitalist aspects to them in order to promote innovation and incentivize work, otherwise there isn't much that is lost if someone doesn't show up to work. I mean, look at it this way. If there are 10 people working on a farm who will all sit down to dinner to eat what they've worked hard to reap from the farm at the end of the day, 10 of them will get to eat. However, if one person decides they don't want to work today because everyone else will do enough work, there will only be enough food for nine people split among 10 people. I mean, still enough food for everybody. But what happens when another person sees the first person not working and decides not to work as well? But now there's only enough food for eight people split amongst 10 people. Still enough food, but this trend will continue until there's simply not enough food for everyone. Some would argue, well, just kick them off the farm then. But unfortunately, that's not how it works in a communist nation, if you want to behave humanely. In the Soviet Union, people who refused to work were sent to the gulags, brutal work camps where people were essentially sent to die. The government used the fear of these camps to incentivize work, instilling fear into their populace. And this proved to be a very unhappy way to live. My third reason for why nationalized communism doesn't work is that, in the, in, in the modern day at least, is that communism advocates for the removal of all forms of currency. If one nation removed their forms of currency, it would be nearly impossible for them to trade with any other country around the world, basically sterilizing their growth. In the globalized world we live in, that's just not possible. Okay, moving on. On to forms of capitalism. In the United States, we enjoy many of the freedoms of living under a democratic capitalist society, which is demonstra demonstrated by our ability to choose products based on their quality, choose the companies we purchase them from, and never have to be told where we can and cannot buy things that we need. The United States has instituted protections against monopolization, which means no single company will ever control the means of production or distribution of a single necessity. For example, if one company bought all other grocery stores in the country, they would control how expensive bread is in every grocery store, meaning they could charge $10 for a loaf of bread if they wanted to, because where else are people going to get it? The capitalist society in the United States encourages competition and innovation and offers protections against these kind of monopolies in the country. Basically, having a monopoly on a specific product has become illegal in our nation. The free market system, meaning private businesses are able to control the prices of their own goods unrestricted by the federal government, gives anyone, anywhere, the opportunity to start a business and join in the competitive nature of the capitalist game. Economic growth is always present in a capitalist society, and people are free to turn their talents and skills into profit. Hypothetically, it's a perfect place to live. Just like, hypothetically, under a communist society, it's also a perfect place to live. Unfortunately, no economic system is perfect when used practically, and the democratic capitalism of the United States has its downsides. One of the major arguments against capitalism in the United States is that it leads to inequality. Bad news. Though capitalism in and of itself does not breed inequality, the practice of it in the United States has led to such inequality through the last 150 years of growth. 
The United States is home to many huge companies and conglomerates such as Walmart, Amazon, ExxonMobil, Apple, Berkshire Hathaway, AT&T, Costco, and a lot of others. And these companies have each had their own growth processes making their owners extremely wealthy. Wealth is not inherently evil, and each of these business owners have earned their way to the top, but there are many arguments that the wealth of these people is too disparate from the people at the bottom of the company who are doing the actual work. Taxes and restrictions on large companies often cause them to outsource to other countries for cheaper labor, such as Apple setting up sweatshops in China and Hasbro Incorporated in the Staples Company in other areas of the world, often in second or the third world. Even auto manufacturers and Amazon started setting up shop in Canada and Mexico. In these countries, often workers are kept under inhumane conditions and paid much less than the work that they do, barely enough to pay for their rent, while the owners of the company are sitting in cushy chairs behind an oak desk in their air-conditioned office eating steak and shrimp for dinner. Whether you are pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist, there isn't any denying that these inequalities exist as a result of the practice of capitalism in the United States. But hang on. Let's examine something else really quickly. As I gave some benefits to the socialist ideals and also validated the communist theory while expounding upon the dangers of capitalism, I'm also going to hold the media to the fire for a second. I will never take a one-sided political stance on this podcast because that's not why I started the show. I can't emphasize that enough, but I will always stand against, uh, against conscious bias. In the United States, it's undeniable that much of the mainstream news cycle has been trying to discredit the presidency of Donald Trump, and one of the things many news outlets have been focusing on was Donald Trump's decision to give tax breaks to large corporations. A lot of people condemned this decision as Trump favoring the wealthy, but this decision goes a bit deeper than that. I've re I referenced before that outsourcing can become a problem in a capitalist society, and this practice is what Trump's tax policy was actually combating. In theory, giving tax breaks to these large corporations would keep them in the United States because suddenly it was cheaper to stay in the country than to move somewhere else. The jobs that could have been lost stayed in the country, and humane conditions had to be upheld, guaranteed by the United States Constitution and the many labor unions in the nation. Was Donald Trump just catering to the ultra-wealthy? No. This is not true. Anyway. Is capitalism evil? Is socialism evil? No. They cannot be evil. They are, they are simply systems of economics. I truly believe that one of the greatest examples of social engineering in history was the ability for two huge countries to convince their citizens that a form of economics was evil. The USSR with capitalism and the United States with socialism. It all depends on your opinion. Capitalism promotes innovation, individual growth, competition, and hard work. Socialism promotes more widespread happiness, lessened financial stress, and the government-funded meeting of basic necessities. In a capitalist society, an individual has a greater chance of working their way to the top to become extremely wealthy, while in a socialist society, the collective populace tends to have a higher happiness index. There are benefits and detriments to each ideology. Communism, however, is different because it transcends beyond an economic ideology to a governmental structure. 
In an economic sense, it's not much different than socialism, but in a governmental sense, the two are deeply divided. Personally, I wouldn't want to live in a communist nation because I want to have the ability to determine my own future based on my own work ethic, but that's just me. Is there such thing as a purely socialist state? No, there's not. Is there such thing as a purely capitalist state? No, there isn't. Any country that has lasted more than 200 years has a blend of the two as a way to moderate their economic growth and provide a safety net for their citizens. That's just the way it works, the way it has always worked, and the way I see it, the way that it's going to continue to work. All right, that is it for this, uh, this week's podcast. Thank you for joining me. This was a complicated podcast because I felt like there was so much to cover, and I realized about halfway through researching for this podcast that I was a little bit in over my head. That will happen occasionally, it's happened in the past, uh, but I did my best to try to get as much information packed into this one episode as I could. I hope you could follow along. There was a lot of information that I really just fire-hosed you with. Um, but I hope you learned something about capitalism, communism, and socialism, and how each of them differs, and how sometimes we are indoctrinated into believing certain things based on the political ideology that we identify most with, when in reality, some of these things just aren't true. So, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop a five-star review. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Uh, it really does help us get more people involved with the conversation about historical narrative and why it's important. So, without further ado, I will be back next week, and I cannot wait to dive into the topic that I'm getting into next week. Next week, we are talking about ancient monuments. That's going to be interesting. All right, this is Tanner talking about stuff that happened, and I am signing off for the rest of the day. I'll catch you guys next week.